to sign it. So we'll be, we'll be getting on those projects very, very soon. But thanks, Jen, for reminding me. And I'll give that back to you. Okay. All right. Well, let's get started. You know, um, when we're studying a book uh, of the Bible, I, I'm one of those people. I get so excited about the historical significance and what was happening in the culture and everything. So I'm going to try to move beyond that. But that's, that's just fun stuff for me. But the book of Ruth... Uh, obviously, it's in the Old Testament. It's four chapters. It takes 12 minutes to read, the whole thing. So there's, it's a short story, but it's actually been called the crown jewel of the Old Testament. It's historically significant. Um, it's been called a literary masterpiece. Um, one German writer poet wrote that it's the loveliest piece of work on a small scale. So it's a beautiful story. And you know what? We've been talking about beloved, haven't we? How many of you love a good love story? Absolutely, we do. But it's not only a love story between people. It's a beautiful love story of God's showing his love, his favor, his redemption. That's going to be a very important word in what we're doing. And here's the historical significance of this um, story. Now, you know that every word in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there is a specific reason why this book of the Bible appears. Um, there were many stories and books circulating, but this one um, was led by the Holy Spirit to be included in our Bible as we know it today. And here's one reason why I really believe that it is. It foreshadows Jesus redeeming. It foreshadows what Jesus did for us as a redeemer. Um, but let's go first to Matthew 1. If you look at the begats, Right? Not the most exciting 16 verses in the whole Bible. But it talks about, um, it begins with Abraham, the father of Jacob, and ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. And what's interesting is in this group of very interesting names, if you're looking for names for your, for your uh, coming baby. You might not want to use these names. They're really weird. All right. But anyway, can't even pronounce most of them. But on the other hand, there are five women mentioned in this genealogy. And the genealogy ends with um, the genealogy of Jesus. So these five women were part of the plan to, of the bloodline for Jesus to be born. And, of course, David is in there as well. And these five women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, Ruth is in there. And we're going to learn that Ruth was not a Jewish woman. And neither was Tamar, and neither was Rahab. And these women, in fact, um, maybe save Ruth, the, uh, Tamar and Rahab um, both participated in sexual sin. Rahab was a prostitute who married a Jewish man and was redeemed. She claimed the God of Israel, but that was her past. Tamar did something really sneaky and, and underhanded, and you almost want to say yuck, but it had a lot of sexual sin attached to it as well. Um, she wanted she, to preserve the bloodline that was common practice, and we're going to get into this a little bit more even with our story, for um, a widow to um, have a child by a family member 
Yuck. But that's, that was because bloodline was so important back then. You remember, they didn't have the whole world populated yet. So um, she uh, was not becoming a mother the way that it was supposed to be. So she tricked her father-in-law into making her a mother. Yuck. But that's what happened. So um, these are women who are in the bloodline in the genealogy of not only King David, but Jesus Christ. And Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not from the land of, um, of Judah. And um, yet she's included. And what this tells me is that, first of all, God honors women. Women are the most important part of this bloodline because they had the babies, right? Okay, but um, Jesus always honored women. God honors women. And the, though these women did not live perfect lives, they, and they may have even been considered lower class in their society, this is God's grace and mercy. See, he doesn't judge us on our past. We do neither qualify nor disqualify ourselves to be used by God based on what we've done or who we are, but it's because of God's goodness. And if God is not looking for perfect people. Aren't you happy to hear that? That is good news. But these women appear as part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so that makes Ruth, the book of Ruth, very, um, very significant as well. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, so even though Jesus chose, or God chose the, the Israel, Israeli people to be his chosen people, though they rejected him, they're still God's chosen people. But we also know that the gospel not only came for the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And if, uh, if you want to say a, a big amen to that, aren't we glad that we can participate in this amazing gospel of salvation and redemption. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So God, in the book of Ruth, we see this in action. Ruth becomes part of the genealogy, the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And that's just the grace of God. All right, let's look on um, the screen here, the definition of redemption, to redeem or redemption. It includes the ideas of loosing from a bond, setting free from captivity or slavery, buying back something lost or sold, exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another, and ransoming. We're going to see a lot of redemption in action when it comes to the book of Ruth. Something that um, we're held captive to, for instance, a slave. A slave owner who bought a slave could have also given him his freedom. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? We were held captive and we were in slavery to sin. And Jesus bought us and then he handed us our freedom through his blood. Ruth, we're going to find out, was in a desperate situation, but God sent a redeemer. But it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus redeems uh, so we're going to definitely stay in this mode of thinking about redemption and what that means for us. Salvation, here's some buzzwords, all right, some headlines. Redemption is salvation, deliverance, rescue, liberation, release, and recovery. Anything jumping out at you? Anything that we need from that list? I can see many things that are significant to us. So 
this is our, the spiritual significance is to see the experience of the power of what we're going to call a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman, someone who is related to us. The Bible says that Jesus is our brother and we are in the family of God. So Jesus has become our kinsman redeemer. These are just little tidbits I'm throwing out there because this will become a very um, wonderful part of the story that as we unfold. It's a beautiful love story. And it's a story about beloved. Ruth loses a beloved. God brings her a beloved. And she becomes a beloved. So it's a beautiful love story. And we will be following a series of events which brought Ruth face to face with the man who would redeem her. Save her, deliver, rescue, liberate, release, and recover her. But we know that God is always drawing us to have a face-to-face -face encounter with our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. So we could really call Ruth a heroine. And the main characters in this story have some interesting names, so I kind of like playing with some of these. So let's go ahead and look at the um, meanings of some of the main characters that we're going to be starting um, to read about and to study about. First of all, Ruth. Her name means friend or companion. If you know the story of Ruth already, you know, wow, that's very fitting. That was her name. Naomi was her mother-in-law. It means pleasantness. Um, but at one point, she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And she became Mara, but it literally means bitter. Elimelech was her, um, Naomi's husband, and his name was My God is King. But he's out of the picture in about two sentences, but I just thought that was a good... Uh, it, he obviously worshipped the one true God. Chilion and Malon, they were the sons of, um, of Naomi and Elimelech. And they named him weakness and consumption, sickness and consumption. Um, I wouldn't highly recommend those names for your children either, all right? Um, you know, so they didn't last very long either, I'm afraid. Um, Orpah was another daughter-in-law, and it literally means back of the neck, and we're going to find that's exactly what happened when she turned and walked away. That's what you saw was the back of her neck. And Boaz is another one of our characters, obviously, very main in, in the redemption, means in him there is strength. So these names are so fitting for the story of Ruth. So let's begin. We're literally going to read through the whole first chapter and talk about it and, and unpack it together. So let's start to read here in chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It places us in history. Um, the day of judges was before King Saul, was, who became the first king of, of Israel and Judah, um, it was before he was named king. So we are still being ruled by judges, and there was trouble in the land. There was a famine. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Bethlehem being very significant for many obvious reasons, um, of Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Invalid and Pining, or Sick and consumption. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. They went to the country of Moab and continued there. It appears that they went there because there was food there. But they left the land of their ancestors, the, the blessed land, and they went to Moab. And let me just describe to you what Moab is all about. Moab was, is originally uh, was established through a, another story that may be familiar, Sodom and Gomorrah. When Lot and his wife and his two daughters left the 
uh, city as God was raining down fire and destroying the city. This is where Lot turned around, not Lot, I'm sorry, Lot's wife turned around and she turned into a pillar of salt. Okay, so you know the story. She was longing. It wasn't because she just looked. She was longing for that and they were told, don't look back, just keep going. And unfortunately, she longed for the, the very sinful um, place that they had just left. And unfortunately, things didn't get a whole lot better because Lot's two daughters decided that they were going to get their father drunk and have sex with him, and they had illegitimate children through their, their dad. Yuck! Okay. But anyway, one of those sons was Moab, and he was so birthed. This nation was birthed from an incestuous relationship, and yet... Elimelech and Naomi moved there, and the uh, atmosphere there was so awful. Um, they worshiped two gods, uh, Molech and um, what's his face? Uh, <laughs> but these were two, you know, you don't really need to know that, do we? But here's what they did. They, they built uh, these altars um, out of rock, and this god was a god where they sacrificed their children. And so it was a very evil atmosphere that Ruth and Orpah came from, or Oprah, you know, it's a little easier to say, but no, she's Orpah. And so these two, uh, the, the sons end up marrying Moabite women. Let's continue on this because I got ahead of myself a little bit. Next. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, and she was left with her two sons. They marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other one Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without two sons and her husband. We actually have three widows here, don't we? And Naomi has also lost her two sons. Loss upon death upon grief, you can well imagine. So... But these Moabite women have been living in, in this heathen, pagan atmosphere. And yet, we're going to find that the seed of God and the belief in God was well planted um, in their hearts. And so, um, let's go on to the next reading here. So then she arose, who was Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in Moab how the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. They're moving for food. That's not a bad motivation. I'm glad they're coming back. So she left the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they started on the way back to Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find a home and rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they wept aloud. Now we find that Naomi says, wait a minute, girls, you're from Moab. I probably shouldn't be expecting you to follow me to an, a foreign country back to where um, Naomi was from. And so she gives them an out. She says, just go find you know, your, your parents' home. Um, they'll be able to take care of you. And you know, widows in these days, if they didn't have sons, were in big trouble. All right, sons were the covering. Sons would take the place of caring for the mother um, in, the, in the absence of a father. And so... Naomi did want the best for these women, and she knew they had a better chance of being remarried and having children if they would stay in their own country. And let's move on. 
So she, she tells them, just go back to your parents' home. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may come to your husbands, may, may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? I don't know if she was teasing or what. I don't know. This is kind of a funny... Uh, a way of approaching this. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is far more bitter for me than you that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Then they wept aloud again, and here's Orpah, back of the neck, kissed her mother-in-law and waved goodbye. So that's why, that's an interesting meaning to her name, because that's what they saw as she left. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth stayed. It says, Orpah left, but Ruth clung. The law that is being discussed here is actually called Leveret Law. And again, this is kind of a yuck thing. But as I had explained earlier, when a, um, if brothers lived together and they each had a wife and one brother died, the other one was told to make sure that the bloodline continues and it was lawful for the other brother to take the the widow as his wife to keep the property together, to keep the bloodline intact and to keep the family strong. But both brothers had died. And so what Ruth is saying is, I can't even offer you leveret law here. I don't have another son to take care of you, to give you a child, to make sure that your uh, bloodline stays strong in the family. And so it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I think even if I could get pregnant tonight, you can't wait around long enough for these men to you know, grow up so that you can marry them. So here um, Orpah decides, yep, going back. Ruth says, no, I'm staying. Let's go on to the next one here. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth is very insistent here, but I think somebody is more insistent. And Ruth said, urge me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death imparts me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. I think these are maybe some of the most beautiful verses of commitment, of making a decision. And the decision that Ruth made changed her entire family tree, as we see. And she was making a very um, serious decision. She said, and what was the difference? Why did Orpah leave but Ruth clung? And I believe the, the key is right in the very beginning here. It says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And Ruth says, I am not returning to my gods. Your God shall be my God. So now I'm one of you. I'm going to be with you because that is the choice that I am making. Not knowing what that future looked like 
It was very uncertain. There was famine in the land. They kept moving to find where the food was. But Ruth made a decision that she was not going to follow the heritage or the traditions of her very heathen pagan country. So in choosing to stay with Ruth, Ruth chose the one true God. In Moab, they worshiped many gods. And like I said, it was very pagan. It was very evil. But here's Ruth clinging not only to her mother-in-law, but she is clinging to the revelation that she has gotten that God, the God of Israel is now my God. And yet she was a foreigner. She could have said, oh, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I don't deserve this. But somehow she knew that she was welcome in the beloved, into the family of believers and she is vowing really to lose her family and to gain a new family. She's vowing to worship the one true God. And it would limit her chances of finding a husband because there's actually uh, in Deuteronomy 7, 2, 3, um, the people were commanded not to intermarry with other um, countries and other um, quote-unquote foreigners. And I'm, I'm lifting that word uh, out of the Bible, okay? I'm not um, trying to be sound, um, what's the word? <laughs> I hope that's not offensive, let's just say. But that's how they said that moving away from her people to live in a foreign land would limit her chances of finding a husband because it was commanded in their law that Israelites marry other Israelites rather than seek out brides and serve pagan gods as the Moabites did. And that was a law in Deuteronomy. But that didn't matter. She didn't calculate her chances or what is, was best for her. She decided to care for her mother-in-law, and she decided, even though she might be shunned by her family, that she, her future was now in the hands of God. Excuse me. These scriptures right here, if you could put those back up there. That your people shall be my people. I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. Uh, the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Those are very, very um, meaningful scriptures to me. Um, don't have time to tell you my love story, but I want to tell you a little bit of what my husband and I uh, went through. It was a long courtship, but we started young, and I'm not going to tell you how young. But um, over a period of eight years, um, we were together, and then we weren't together. We, uh, we were engaged once. I broke off the engagement. Um, and yet God picked up a lot of pieces and healed a lot of our heart so that we could be together, because I, I, and I'm so glad he did. <laughs> We just celebrated our 36th anniversary this year. I know. Thank you. And it's, it's just awesome. But because we had gone through so much, and this was the part that I wanted to share with you, um, we were both raised Lutheran, and I just want to say I love the denominations. If it weren't for my upbringing, I would not know the love of God. I would not have received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. There was so much in my background and in my upbringing that I thank God for. And I always have to bring this up because it just makes a difference. My dad was a pastor. So I was a PK. Not a perfect kid, but I was a pastor's kid. But I loved being Lutheran, and I loved being, you know, involved in church. Um, 
I was always doing something. It's like we, that was our, the church was in our backyard and we were there probably sometimes more than we were home. But the Holy Spirit led me in a different direction at one point in my life. And I began to see that God was drawing me into um, a different direction with especially um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And at one point, um, a friend of mine led me in, uh, to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Well, that didn't happen in the Lutheran church that we went to. Um, I know it does happen in a lot of Lutheran churches. But it so freaked out my then boyfriend husband now uh, to the point that I was telling him about this wonderful experience of speaking in tongues and that it just kind of came up from my spirit and I see it in the word of God, but I didn't really know a lot about what had happened to me. It was more of an experience. It was a wonderful experience, but he took many steps to talk me out of it. And one of them was marching me right into my dad's office and telling him all about it. I hadn't even told him all about it. Um, I didn't know how to tell him all about it. And then the, uh, other people that, you know, would say, oh, you want to stay away from that? That's really dangerous. I've never seen anybody prosper from doing that stuff, you know. So it's dangerous. You need to stay away. Well, I didn't have a lot of teaching. I didn't understand exactly what had happened to me, so I kind of put it on a shelf. Well, things changed. Um, at one point, uh, my husband decided to go into the Air Force, and um, it seemed like God kept that thing that he had um, uh, not rejected but had, had um, tried to talk me out of kind of in the forefront. It's like the Holy Spirit was always kind of reminding him. And as he began to read the word, he realized, wait a minute, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And that, that there is a, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus said that believers in my name, they will lay hands on the sick and they will speak in new tongues. And, and, and if they drink any deadly poison, you know, it will not harm them. Um, but it's right in there with the, the uh, commission that Jesus left us with. So believers are, are speaking in tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul talks about it extensively in 1 Corinthians 14. He just didn't know what to do with it. And so he said at one point, here he is in Alaska, um, kneeling uh, at his bedside praying. It's like, God, what? you got to show me. If this is of you, I want it. And he said right there, he received what he believed by faith was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said, yet nothing came out of his mouth, but he said he knew that he knew that he knew that it was inside. And about a couple weeks later, he said, as I was praying, it just suddenly flowed in such a natural way. And so now he's like, this is awesome, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying, yeah, well, yeah, that one that you talked me out of. And I was like this. So we, in a sense, were unequally yoked, even though we um, both love God with all of our hearts. But like I said, I had gotten talked out of it. And so God, over a series of events, um, including an angelic visitation, and um, um, we had both kind of gone our own way. I was dating somebody. He was dating somebody. I thought he was going to marry her. I thought I was going to marry him. All these weird things were going on for about two years. And yet, <laughs> and yet God was still working to bring us back together. Um, so, like I said, I don't have time to explain all those. But on the other hand, what was so cool when I think back on those days is that we, when we finally did get back together and he had asked me to marry him, 
again, and I said, this time I mean it, okay, so <laughs> I had to assure him I had grown up quite a bit there in a short period of two years, and he said, okay, but we've got to settle this issue between us, don't we? I said, yeah, we kind of do. How are, are we in agreement about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And he very wisely, he, he said, okay, I want you to take your Bible and a tape recorder and this series of tapes. Okay, I'm dating myself big time, all right? We don't do the tape recorder thing anymore. He said, but I want you to listen to this series of teaching because that's the thing that I lacked. I didn't understand it. And so he said, but every time he says, read this out of the scriptures, he said, I want you to pause it. Open your Bible and see it for yourself. He says, I'm not trying to talk you into this. I want you to see the word of God. And so I did that, and it didn't take long for once again for my heart to sob and say, God, this is of you. This is something that you have a beautiful gift for each and every believer. And I just, it helped us to get back in sync with what God had for us. And so that is how, uh, okay, and here's the thing. By agreeing to marry my husband in this time period that we were in, it meant that I was going to be, you know, picking up roots and moving with him to Albuquerque, New Mexico, because that's where he was stationed. There wasn't a choice in that. But the good thing was is that he had gotten plugged into just an amazing church, very much like this church here, which was very different from what I was used to. I don't know if anybody can identify with that. You know, when, you, when I worshiped, it was kind of like, okay, that, this is the best I can do right now. I was a little bit uncomfortable. But it always was a process of knowing that this is the direction that God was leading us. And so by agreeing to this, I was making a courageous decision because I was making a life-changing commitment to go the direction of the Holy Spirit. I knew my dad was going to be disappointed. That wasn't what I wanted to do. But I had to do what I believe the Holy Spirit was leading us to do. And so by, by doing that, I also knew that I was changing our future with our children and making those kinds of choices to serve God in this way. And so when I bought Bill's um, wedding band, I had engraved Ruth 1, 16 and 17, because this is where I believed the decision led me, that I will go where you go. I don't care where life is going to take us, but I'm going to stick with you. And where you lodge, I will lodge. I'm going to a foreign country in my own mind. But I said, your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord will do to me if anything but death parts me from you. Doesn't that sound like a wedding vow? Till death do us part. And so it's very personal to me. Ruth was making a decision that totally changed her family tree. And I believe I did the same. You know, we've raised our kids to know Jesus in this way. And her heritage, nothing would ever be the same for her, but she was trusting God with a very uncertain future. So let's go on to PowerPoint number seven here. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred about them and said, is this Naomi? Because they remembered her from the years before. And she said to them, call me not Naomi Pleasant, Call me Mara bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. She was married. She had two sons. But the Lord has brought me home empty. 
Why call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And this ends the first chapter. But I want to point out right here, poor Naomi, obviously she had suffered greatly, great loss. But her words are not helping this condition. And I want to say just because these words that God and the Almighty has afflicted me and has brought me home empty and she's bitter against the Almighty does not mean that it's true just because she said it. That is not true of God, and it does not line up with God's character. So we need to be careful that we always weigh Scripture with Scripture. But this was the condition that she was in, and we don't, we don't condemn her for it. But God did not bring her home empty. God doesn't kill people. He, um, John 10.10 10 tells us the source of sickness, death, and destruction is always the devil. The thief comes not only but to kill steal and destroy. Jesus said, but I have come to give you life. Life is always about what God is about. So you can't blame her for being, um, you know, grieving her terrible losses, but her anger is misplaced. It is, should not be against God. God did not cause the death of her sons. God did not cause Elimelech to move his family to a foreign country where, who knows, Perhaps they were um, exposed to other things that they normally would not have. We don't know why they died. But see, Naomi didn't have John 10.10 yet. Okay, so she's operating in her limited understanding of who God is. And so Naomi's tragedy, though it struck, her accusations about God are not true. But here's the danger in speaking those things because Hebrews 12, 15 says, Out of the abundance the heart speaks. We see bitterness in abundance. Root of bitterness is a dangerous thing. And we are snared by the words of our mouth. So in times of tragedy, I want to encourage you, watch what you say. Be careful that you don't feed into a negative problem and a negative situation with negative words. So what should we be saying? Well, first of all, God... Renew my mind. Let me see this situation through your eyes. You're, my God is my strength. You are my strong tower. You are a good father. So I have an expectation of good and not for evil. I can rest and rely on you in times of trouble because I see myself covered under the shadow of your wings. And no evil can come near me and no plague near my dwelling. And you can continue to speak the truth of God's word, which will speak life into a dead situation. But what we see are poisonous words coming out of Naomi's mouth. And she wasn't feeding into this, I'm sorry, a pity party that she was throwing from herself. And like I said, there's a time of grieving. But at some point, she's going to turn that around because she's going to take a look at her one true God who becomes her redeemer as well. So I'm not getting down on her, but I want to encourage you. What do we do in times of difficulty? Watch what we're saying. Say what God says. See what God sees. Let him give you a vision of the future that's different from what you're seeing right in front of you. So have you ever heard this quote, what the devil meant for your harm, God will turn around for your good? Yeah, we, we quote that like that's a, a New Testament scripture. I love the roots of this. 
And it's actually found in the story of Joseph, you know, the one with the many colors, the coat of many colors, uh, found in the book of Genesis. And we know that Joseph did not have an easy life, and yet God redeemed him as well. And so what I want to just say is that the, the root of that scripture is talking about when evil comes, when bad things happen, and the Bible says it's going to happen. It says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We were not promised trouble-free lives. I wish we were. Did Jesus have a trouble-free life? Did Paul have a trouble-free life? No, but in it, they were, they were rescued, redeemed, and delivered by the power of God. But what the devil means for our harm, God can turn around for your good. And I love the way that Max Lucado talks about this um, scripture. And let me just say, um, I'm going to just read this to you because who can say it better than Max Lucado? I'm a big fan. Um, he wrote an, uh, a blog that said, In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. You might not see it right away, but we have to believe that our future is still in God's hands regardless of the obstacles that we're seeing and maybe having to deal with. Joseph, son of Jacob, graduate with honors from the University of Hard Knocks. He was hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, was, um, did very well in this position in the Potiphar's house, and yet um, he got thrown in jail for something he did not do. He's sitting in jail while everybody else is getting um, taken out and put into high places of authority. Do you think maybe he came from the University of Hard Knocks? Director of Global Effort to Save Humanity Succeeded. These are his official titles, according to Max Lucado. How? How did he flourish in the midst of tragedy? We don't have to speculate. Some 20 years later, the roles were reversed. Joseph as the strong one and his brothers, the weak ones. They came to him in dread. They feared he would settle the score and throw them into a pit of his own making. But Joseph didn't. And in his explanation, we find his inspiration. This found in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph is talking to his brothers when he finally reveals who he is. Because they came to Egypt, remember, and thought they were bowing before an Egyptian ruler, not knowing it was actually their brother. But Finally, Joseph says to them, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. Joseph tied himself to the pillar of this promise and held on for dear life. Nothing in his story glosses over the presence of evil. Quite the contrary, blood stains, tear stains are everywhere. Joseph's heart was rubbed raw against the rocks of disloyalty and miscarried justice. Yet, time and time again, God redeemed the pain. The torn robe became a royal one. The pit became a palace. The broken family grew old together. The very acts intended to destroy God's servant turned out to strengthen him. You, brothers, meant evil against me. Joseph told his brothers using a Hebrew verb that traces its meaning to the word weave. You wove evil, he was saying, but God rewove it together for good. God, the master weaver, he stretches the yarn and intertwines the colors, the ragged twine with the velvet strings, the pains with the pleasures. 
Nothing escapes his reach. Every king, despot, weather pattern, and molecule are at his command. He passes the shuttle back and forth across the generations, and as he does, a design emerges. Satan weaves, God reweaves.